Amen. Let's stand. Let's remain standing for the scripture reading this morning from John chapter 1. We're going to read uh, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip down to verse 18. And so 1 and 2 and skip down to verse 18. Since there are only three verses, let's read this together aloud from the board. It says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And in verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have sent the eternal word, your Son, Jesus Christ, to come and explain to us who you are, to show us the perfect, um, the perfect revelation of both your wrath for sin and also your love for sinners on the cross of Jesus. Lord, where justice and mercy meet face to face. Lord, we pray this morning that we would see Jesus in our spiritual eyes, that we would, we would understand him more, that we would love him more, and we would be more confirmed and affirmed in our faith to know that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You, Lord Jesus, are central to everything we do. You deserve all the glory, all the praise, and it's because of your gospel that we are here. And I pray that as I try so feebly to explain you this morning, that, Lord, you would supersede me and that your spirit would speak powerfully to the hearts of all of us so that we will see Jesus high and lifted up. May you move me aside. And may you move all of us more closer to you. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. You've probably noticed this morning that all the songs are very oriented toward the person of Jesus Christ. Um, that was done on purpose because, um, I don't know, you know, sometimes um, an issue will come up that I feel like is worthy that we need to stop our present study, uh, which is in Galatians, and maybe take a week or two uh, to talk about it. A lot of times those issues are in the news and they're very familiar with us, uh, things like hurricanes and tornadoes and, and uh, racism and things like that. But sometimes uh, things come up that don't make the news, and yet they are absolutely vital for us to see and absolutely vital for us because they deal in the world of our faith. And one such item did come up uh, a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Ligonier Ministries. That is the ministry of R.C. Sproul. And uh, he went home to be with the Lord uh, just a few months ago, actually. And, um, and yet his ministry teams up with Lifeway Research every two years. And they do a survey of, of around 3,000 people. And they just ask them some basic questions about theology and doctrine and such like that. 
And, and then they categorize them based upon their answers according to if they would categorize themselves as evangelical or as the, really the rest of culture. And it's called the State of Theology Survey. And they do this every two years. And one of the things they found this year is that Christians are much more bold to speak out on political issues Uh, We're much more bold to speak out on things such as homosexual marriage, abortion, those things that we so adamantly oppose because we believe the word of God. However, when it comes to other things, things that are absolutely crucial to our faith, we didn't do so well. And one in particular really caught my attention. And that is this, according to the survey, 30% of those who were claimed to be evangelical said that they agree with this statement that Jesus Christ was a good teacher, but he is not God. Now that is 30% of evangelicals, people in our churches. Another 4% said that they were unsure. That's on top of the 30% that disagreed. Another 4% said they were unsure. And another 4% said that they only somewhat agree. That is almost, in fact, that is over one-third of professing evangelicals said that they agree with the statement that Jesus is a good teacher, but he is not God. Beloved, you can call yourself an evangelical, but if you believe that, you are not a child of God. That is... The one of the most basic affirmations of our faith. And it's not hard to understand, given considering that one of the most popular pastors in our country, a man who writes books that just about every seminary uh, student has to read on preaching and communication and small groups and stuff like that, he was interviewed at an LU chapel and he, uh, LU Liberty University, my alma mater, uh, he was interviewed at this chapel and, and he's one of these pastors who has chosen not to meet at all until uh, next year at the absolute earliest. And they were asking him to give his theological rationale for that. And among many of these appalling statements, he said, uh, one of which he said was, Jesus did not command his gatherers to follow, which by the way, shows an appalling lack of understanding of the inspiration of scriptures. But then he also says, that Jesus never played the God card. He, said, he never said, hey guys, I am God. In fact, as he was trying to explain Philippians chapter two, he committed what I think was probably a Freudian slip. He addressed Jesus as one who was made in the image of God. Most popular pastor. Son of a very popular Pastor. I said his name, all of you would know him. With pastors like that, it's not hard to understand why we're not doing so well in this area. Now, we affirm that Christ is God almost weekly at Calvary. This is something I think that we are very secure on. I I pray that we are. I, I I think just about on a weekly basis, we, uh, we pray to Christ, we worship Christ, we exalt Christ, we, all of these things, we say that Christ is God. But as a pastor, I do have to wonder is that if you were ever challenged with this, is this something that you would be able to defend? Is this, if you were to ever have doubts about this, is this something you would be able to find in the scriptures on your own? And for that reason, I want to make sure that no one who leaves here today leaves with any doubt whatsoever 
that Jesus Christ is God to the glory of the Father. And so we're gonna take at least about two weeks to do this. And we're gonna show you that we have a scriptural view of Christ that the consistent testimony of the entire word of God is that Jesus Christ is the eternal second person of the Trinity, fully 100% God, uncreated, unmade. He is eternally existent with the Father and with the Spirit. Jesus Christ is God. Apparently, you can be an evangelical in our culture and a church member and disagree with that statement, but beloved, you cannot be a child of God and disagree with that statement. And so we're going to see that this is not something that the church just made up. This is not something that the New Testament authors even just made up, but this is the consistent testimony of the entire scriptures. And so we're going to begin this morning by showing you from the Old Testament that the Old Testament did, in fact, tell us that Jesus Christ, when he come, when the Messiah came, he was going to be God in the flesh, and we're going to see that in in a couple of ways. John chapter five, verse 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. And he's primarily talking about the Old Testament there. So if Christ says that the Old Testament testifies this about him, then we should expect that it would say this as well. And in fact, it does. And we're gonna look at two primary evidences this morning. And by the way, this is gonna be a little different than my usual, um, my usual uh, modus operandi, if you wanna say, my usual way of preaching. We're gonna be turning in our Bibles a lot. So uh, if you want to uh, try to follow along, you can. Uh, otherwise, if it's a really important text that you really need to see, I'll give you time to turn there. Otherwise, you might wanna just write down the references. And I do have them on the board for you, most of them, I think. So we're going to see two ways that the Old Testament reveals that Christ is the eternal second person of the triunity of God. He is fully God. And we're going to see, first of all, this through the Old Testament predictions of the coming Messiah. We're going to see this through the Old Testament predictions and in several key places, key prophecies that, that we read every year around Christmas time. We're going to see that when you look at them carefully, you're going to see that it affirms that the one who is coming, the suffering servant, the, the king who will be born in Bethlehem, it will in fact be God's actual presence with us. And the first place we're going to turn is is in Isaiah, and we're going to look at really chapters seven through nine, but there's two key verses that we're going to look at. So Isaiah chapter seven, if you will turn there with me, and just a heads up, you might want to, if you have a Bible ribbon, you might want to put it there because we're going to be back in Isaiah here in a few minutes. But there's two primary passages, and you can probably guess what they are, one of them, because it's already on the board for you, is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And this is the famous Emmanuel prophecy. It says here that, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. By the way, there are some contextual things here that you do need to be aware of. This is a 
prophecy that deals in significance and what what the uh, older preachers used to refer to as double fulfillment. Uh, There is some of that going on here. But even in this verse, we do see the virgin birth. Uh, We see that a virgin shall conceive, but it also says that she will call his name Emmanuel. Brothers and sisters, back during this day, it was the father who named the child. Therefore, the fact that she is going to name him Emmanuel indicates a diminished, uh, a diminished uh, understanding of the father's role in this birth. So already we're seeing not just in the word virgin, but we're also seeing the teaching of the virgin birth. But what, is, what, is, what we're seeing here for us is that his name shall be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel, it's the Hebrew, that's actually a sentence in Hebrew, which means God is with us. Now, again, there are some textual things to consider, but the full realization of this, Matthew makes it very clear in Matthew chapter one, is that this finds its fullest fulfillment and significance in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and that God himself is with us. It is, he is the fulfillment of God with us. The very presence of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And in case there's any doubt, most of us just turn a page over to Isaiah chapter nine. Isaiah chapter nine. And in this sentence, and again, and, and, and choir members, you're going to be very familiar with the song because you sing this verse in a wonderful uh, harmonic, harmonic way. Um, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, And for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Two things, two words stand out. All of these words point to the deity of Christ. But there's two that especially stand out that I want, I want you to look at. And we'll notice a third one later. But number one is that the child that is born will be mighty God. Now, some people today will say that that, is, that should be translated God is mighty. And my response to that is look down in chapter 10, verse 21, where Isaiah actually uses the word mighty God as a name for God himself. So the child that will be born will be mighty God and he will be everlasting father or as the word literally means father of eternity. Father of eternity. In other words, this king that is born will be a divine human king who will rule from David's throne. He, and, and in some way, it's not teaching that Jesus is the father. That's a, that's a heresy known as modalism. We don't teach that. There are some Pentecostals that do, but we don't teach that here. We're very clear on that. Uh, it's not saying that Jesus is the father. What it is saying, however, is that in some way, there's going to be this connection, this oneness with the father, that there's going to be this special relationship with the father, that, that to see this divine king is to see the father, which is exactly what Jesus tells us in John 14, 9, that if you have seen me, you have seen the father. He says in John chapter 10, verse 30, 
that I and the Father are one. Probably a throwback to Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, behold the Lord your God, behold the Lord is one. And now Jesus says that I and the Father are one. And so he explains this. And so like I said, you might wanna put your ribbon in Isaiah. In Micah chapter five, that one's a little harder to find. So I'm just gonna put that one up there. Micah chapter five. I think I put it out there. Yeah, it says, but as for you, Bethlehem, and I can't say that word, uh, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one shall go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. And watch this, his goings forth are from long ago. How long ago? From the days of eternity. That the one who is born in Bethlehem, the fulfillment of the, of the Davidic king who is born in Bethlehem, his going forth, he comes from eternity. Beloved, that can be true of no one but God. Only God is eternal. No beginning no end, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The king born from Bethlehem is eternal. He is everlasting. A very common question a child will ask in Sunday school is, who made God? It's a very simple answer, nobody. God is the beginning of all. He is eternal. No beginning, no end. And the same is said of Jesus Christ here in the prophecy that he'll be born in Bethlehem. Only God can be eternal. He is eternally existent in three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everything that is true of the divinity of each one is true of all. To deny either one of them divine status is to blaspheme God and to not be a Christian. This is a pillar of our faith. Let's look back in Isaiah for a moment. There's one other evidence I want you to see and maybe this is something you haven't noticed before. In Isaiah chapter six, In Isaiah chapter six, it, uh, Isaiah is, this is the call of Isaiah. And Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And I want you to notice this phrase, high and lifted up. In fact, I want you to notice a couple of things. Number one, that he does see the Lord all of those who are around him in verse three, one cried out to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You'll notice in most of your translations that word Lord is in all caps there in verse three. We are talking about Yahweh, the, the personal covenant name of our God. And I want you to notice that when Isaiah says, I saw the Lord on the throne and notice this phrase, high and lifted up. That is a phrase that in Isaiah is only used about three times. And two of those times it is used expressly to speak of Yahweh, the Lord God. 
But what I want you to see is if you turn in Isaiah, just a few pages, to Isaiah 53. And by the way, who is Isaiah 53 about? It's about Jesus, right? It's the, it's the prophecy concerning that this one who is the suffering servant, he will bear our iniquities. He will, he will cover our griefs. He will do all of these things for us. But I want you to notice how this servant song begins. It actually doesn't begin in Isaiah 53. It actually begins in Isaiah 52 in verse, 50, in verse 12. In Isaiah 52, excuse me, verse 13, it says, behold, my servant will prosper. And watch this. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Underline that phrase because Isaiah uses it only to refer to Yahweh in his book in his prophecy. The same one that Isaiah saw sitting on the throne, exalted, high and lifted up in Isaiah 6, is the same one that he sees as the servant bearing our iniquities and taking our sins upon himself in Isaiah 53. It's the same one. He uses the same phrase. The same one, God himself is the suffering servant. In case you need further proof, John chapter 12 makes this connection for us. In John chapter 12, he says these things, and John is quoting Isaiah 6 when he says this. He says, these things Isaiah saw, Isaiah said, because he saw Jesus's glory and he spoke of him. John the apostle specifically tells us that the one that Isaiah saw sitting on the throne in Isaiah 6 is Jesus Christ. And he is the same one who is the servant of Isaiah 53. Do you see that connection? Beloved, Jesus Christ is God. Every major prophecy dealing with Christ shows us that he is God. I see a few of you writing down. I'll give you a second to write down that reference. So here's the problem though. If Jesus is eternal, if he is truly God, then where is he in the Old Testament? I mean, shouldn't we expect him to show up? I mean, that's an honest question, is it not? I mean, that's, that's honest. We can ask that. If Jesus is truly God, if the scriptures testify of Jesus, then, then where is he in the Old Testament? Is he hiding? Is he, is he kind of, you know, just peeking around the corner, waiting for his turn? Or is there something else? Now, in one sense, we should expect this because if Jesus is the full revelation of God, then we should expect that until the incarnation of Christ, we will not have a full understanding of God, okay? So that makes sense. That's called progressive revelation. We, in other words, God doesn't tell us everything at once. He kind of works it out through the Bible. So, so in one sense, we should not expect to find the full revelation of Christ in the Old Testament. That is true. However... On the other hand, there are some very clear hints, very clear hints, and times that if we read carefully, I do believe we see Jesus in the text. 
And I'm gonna show you these with Old Testament, what I believe are Old Testament appearances of Christ. So we saw the predictions. We're gonna see the appearances. Now, some are debatable at best. Uh, for example, uh, some, especially among the independent Baptist ranks, you'll, you're, he'll, you'll hear them say that Melchizedek was a, was a early incarnation of Christ. Um, I think that's debatable at best. I don't agree with that. And so, um, and so we're not gonna talk about that. Another one that's debatable, you may remember when Nebuchadnezzar looked at the three friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and uh, Abednego in the, in the fiery furnace. He says, I see a fourth one there, and one looks like the son of God. Uh, that's debatable too, because Nebuchadnezzar, how would he have known? You know, that, that was in his mouth. That wasn't in the narrator's mouth. So we're gonna leave that one out as well. However, there are a couple of places where I think if you see, if you look carefully, I think you're gonna see that what we're talking about is Christ. And one of them is a mysterious character who shows up, especially toward the beginning of the Old Testament, called the angel of Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh. These appearances uh, show up all throughout the historical section of the Old Testament, but he's especially prominent in the beginning. In fact, it may surprise you some of the people he shows up to. He shows up to Hagar, for example. Uh, the book that he shows up the most in is in the book of Judges. The more that Israel goes further and further, further down, the more he shows up. I find that very comforting, by the way. And so he is always referred to as the angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord. And Lord will always be in all caps in your, in your Bible. He's never referred to an angel. It's never called an angel. So immediately we see that there's something different here. And by the way, just so you're aware, the word angel in Hebrew, just like in Greek, all it means is messenger. And so it's just someone who's bringing a message, someone who is explaining something. So, um, you know, like for example, we're about to elect messengers, right? Well, these are people who represent us at at the meeting. Well, in the same way, a messenger is a representative of God. But he shows up in some key places. And when he does, there's aspects of his ministry that seems that what we're talking about here is much more than an angel. So, so let's look at a couple of these. Turn all the way back to Genesis chapter uh, 16. And you might want to move your ribbon from Isaiah and put it in Genesis because we're going to come back here in a little while. Genesis chapter 16. We're familiar with this text because a few weeks ago we were talking about it in the context of, uh, of Galatians and the story of Hagar and Sarah. In Genesis chapter 16, um, Hagar has given birth to Ishmael and you know the story there. He was given, he was conceived in the flesh and, uh, and Ishmael almost immediately started, uh, excuse me, Hagar almost immediately started causing trouble for Sarah and so Sarah kicked her out and she is on her own with the baby. And in verse seven, we see that the angel of the Lord, and by the way, this is the first appearance. The first appearance of the angel of the Lord, at least in this wording, is to Hagar. So interesting. 
But anyway, he found her by a spring of water, and I'm not going to read the whole conversation here, but he commands Hagar to return to Sarah and Abraham, and he makes promises to her about Ishmael. And it's verse 13 that I want you to notice. It says in verse 13, then she called the name of Yahweh who spoke with her. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice about this. Number one, in the text, we see that it is the angel of the Lord that is speaking with her, that is actually talking with her. But we also see that in verse 13, it says that Yahweh himself was actually the one speaking to her. And the other thing I want you to notice is that unlike Nebuchadnezzar, like we said a second ago, this is not Hagar saying this. This is actually the narrator. This is Moses telling us this under inspiration. So Moses calls the name of the angel of the Lord who spoke with her, calls, uh, calls him, refers to him as Yahweh, and notice the name that Hagar gives this angel. You are a God who sees. Yahweh Roy, a God who sees. Moses, as the narrator, says this. And by the way, speaking of Moses, and you might want to put your ribbon there in Genesis, but we're going to skip forward to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Probably one of the most popular stories in the entire Bible. Maybe there's something here that you haven't noticed before. In Exodus chapter 3, in verses 2 through 4, who was it that called Moses from the burning bush? It was God, right? Well, yeah, but look carefully. I was in a world religions class one time and uh, we were talking about Judaism and there was a Muslim in the class and, uh, and uh, the, uh, the teacher said, you know, when God called Abraham or God called Moses from the burning bush and the Muslim, he said, God didn't call him, an angel did. And we were all like, you know, he's a Muslim. He doesn't know. And, and, and then I read it and I was like, oh, <laughs> uh, the Muslim knew his, better, knew his Bible better than I did at the time. Although he was wrong about this. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a burning fire. Notice this phrase, from the mist of the bush. Notice that phrase. We know this story. But look again, who was in the bush? It was the angel of Yahweh. But then look down in verse four. And when Yahweh saw that he turned aside to look, notice God called him where? From the midst of the bush. Who's in the bush? It's the angel of the Lord. But who is the angel of the Lord? It's God. So again, and again, this is not, this is Moses as the narrator making these connections. It's not a human being recorded who could be mistaken. This is Moses under inspiration writing this. And so Moses identifies once again, this angel of Yahweh with God. All right. Let's look a little forward in time to Judges chapter two, verse one. 
Didn't know you were getting a Bible drill this morning, did you? As, uh, Judges chapter two, verse one. The angel of the Lord appears to the entire nation, probably through representatives. And now the angel of Yahweh came up from Gilgal to Bachim, and he said, and I want you to notice, look at these things that he says. Look at how the angel of Yahweh speaks. I brought you out of Egypt. I led you into the land which I swore to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. This is the angel of the Lord speaking, but he's saying things that, beloved, only God can say. And he's not speaking on behalf of God. He is actually speaking as God. Strange. Only God can say these things. And in Judges chapter 13, this is the last one, Judges 13. This is recording the birth. We could look at Gideon, we could look at others, but this one's significant. I'm not gonna read the whole story. This is the story of Manoah and his wife and the birth of Samson. Verses one through 23, you can read it later. But again, we see the angel of the Lord And most significantly in this text, something interesting is happening that the angel of the Lord accepts the worship of Manoah. No angel in the Bible accepts worship. In fact, one angel even tells John, do not bow down to me. Remember when Cornelius, when Peter came into the house and Cornelius bowed down to him, And Peter said, do not do that. I'm only a man. Don't bow down to me. Strange reaction for the first pope, by the way. And yet this angel accepts worship. But what's interesting here and and what I want you to see is uh, Manoah said to the angel of Yahweh in verse 17, what is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. Notice this, but the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing as it is wonderful. We've heard that word wonderful before, haven't we? Where? Isaiah 9, 6. His name shall be called wonderful. Same Hebrew word. And so again, this angel seems to be more and And again, in case there's any doubt, look at verse 22. For Manoah says to his wife, surely we will die for we have seen God. In all these instances, the author says that they have either seen or spoken with God. And these are just a few of many. Which when you look at John chapter one, verse 18, look at this on the board. It it says, um, John chapter one, verse 18. I think it might be toward the end, Mark. I'm sorry, I might be out of order. John chapter one, verse 18 says that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Beloved, if no one has ever seen God the Father, then the only explanation of these appearances is that they must be pre-Bethlehem visions of Christ. Christ. 
They are pre-Bethlehem appearances of Jesus. Otherwise, you have a contradiction in the Bible. It's the only explanation that these appearances of the angel of Yahweh is none other than Jesus himself prior to Bethlehem. And there's one other one I want to look at, and this is the reason why I started in John chapter 1. Have you ever wondered why John refers to Jesus as the Word? Ever wonder why that is? You read most commentaries today, and they'll say that he's interacting with Greek mythology and, you know, Roman wisdom teachers and philosophers and, you know, maybe Philo of Alexandria, stuff like that. But why does John refer to Jesus as the Word? And I've got to be honest with you, uh, this is one that I've actually thinking about this and reading about this. This is one that I've missed and uh, just, just, uh, just saw this this week. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 15. Hopefully your ribbon's there. Genesis 15. Most of the time when God speaks, the Hebrew text simply says something like this. It simply says, and God said. And, and that's it. And that, that's simple enough to understand. By the way, you want to know what the Hebrew literally means when it says, and God said? And God said. That's it. That simple. And so, and God said. But every now and then, it changes the phrase a little bit. And I want to show you this in, in, in Genesis chapter 15. Remember what, remember what the angel of the Lord said in Judges 2. The land which I swore to your fathers, right? And Jesus is the one, the angel of Yahweh is the one who is saying, I made these promises. I swore this to your fathers. The question is, where did he do that? I want you to notice specifically how Genesis 15 is worded. In verse one, it says, after these things, it doesn't say, and God said, it said, and the word of the Lord came to Abram. The word of the Lord came to, it's a, it's a, it's a verb that's used with this term word. The word of the Lord came to Abram. And I want you to notice again in verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, Abram again, saying, this man shall not be your heir, but the one uh, who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And notice verse five, and he took him outside. The word of the Lord is a he. Who was it that appeared to Abraham? It was Jesus. And that's why John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's the same Word who appeared to Abram and gave him the very promises of redemption in the first place. Moses, under inspiration, seems to be personifying the Word of God, and John chapter 1 tells us why. Because the Word is a person. Because the word is the eternal word and the word is the same one that became flesh in John chapter one, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It was the word who came to Abram and pronounced him righteous according to his faith, just like he does for us when we accept him by faith alone. Remember again, John chapter one, verse 18. Whether, and whether you agree with that interpretation or not, that's fine, but... 
But John chapter one, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So one way or the other, it is Jesus who is appearing to Abram in this text. So what's the point of all of this? What's the point of all of this? Uh, I've given you a lot of verses and some of them you might want to go back and look at again, but I, w- I want to bring this down to everyday life. I want to I show you the application of these things that I want you to see, first of all, if for no other reason, what is the practical use of this? Is to show, if for nothing else, that the consistent testimony of Scripture is that Jesus Christ is God. And if you deny that, then you do not believe the Bible at any part. That Jesus is God. He is Lord. And even though he is not fully revealed in the Old Testament, that much we do agree with. He's not fully revealed, but the testimony is consistent. Number two, beloved, our faith is only as good as what we put our faith in. We don't have faith in faith. We don't have faith in faith. Our faith is only as good as who or what we put our faith in. Our faith is in the God of heaven, eternally existent in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And if your faith is not in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can have the strongest faith in the world. It's a faith that'll send you straight to hell. But Jesus says, if you have only the faith of a grain of mustard seed in me, that's enough. Because we are saved not because our faith is great. We are saved because the one we put our faith in is great. That's why we are saved. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, number three, and this is important. Job chapter nine, verse 32 and 33. Job, a man who is attested by God himself that there, is, that there is no one like him on earth in terms of human righteousness, human, human uh, and, uh, the ability in his own flesh to be uphold, upheld. And yet Job says in uh, chapter nine, verse 32 and 33, complaining about God that I cannot approach God, I cannot come to God and argue my case. He says, for he is not a man that I, as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There is no, watch this, there is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Job, Job, a man who is attested by God himself to be that there is no one else in the world like him. And yet Job understood that in order for me to be righteous before God, there must be someone who comes between us. And that person, it's not enough that he just be a man. He must have one hand on God, one hand on man. He must be able to lay his hands upon us both. He must be fully God and fully man. And and the answer to Job's dilemma is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is both fully man and fully God. And because of that, he can be our advocate before God the Father. He can pronounce us forgiven. He can pronounce us justified because he takes his very own righteousness and he gives it to us in the gospel. 
That is our Savior. He is fully God and fully man. First uh, Timothy chapter two says that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, the Christ, Jesus. If you deny that Jesus is God, you may can be a church member or an evangelical in this country, but you are no child of God. But that can change this morning. Perhaps for the first time, you need to come to him. You know, I talked with a local pastor who, uh, you say, oh, that's just, you know, all those coastal elites who go to their liberal churches. No, beloved, I spoke with a local pastor not that long ago, just a few weeks ago, actually, who preached in his church that Christ existed from all eternity. And one of his deacons got mad about that and left the church. Said, I've never heard anything like that before. God forbid that any of us leave Calvary Baptist Church and never hear anything like this before because it is the truth. And if you're here this morning, I want you to know that you can place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. He is the only one who saves because he is the only one who is fully God and fully man. I hope we're straight on this. I hope that we're clear. But if we're not, if you have questions, I would love to talk to you some more. Let's bow our heads. Father, we praise you that Jesus Christ is our God, that he is our eternal Savior. He is our wonderful Lord, our matchless King, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, God of Gods. He is our Savior. And if there's one here this morning who does not know that he is the one mediator between you and us. I pray this morning will be the morning they come to you with absolute clarity that Jesus Christ is God. May you be our vision. May you be the Lord of our heart. May you be our wisdom and our true word. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Let's sing this wonderful prayer together.